on Christmas Eve, 1906, at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, ships in the Atlantic Ocean heard what has been described as the first real radio broadcast. Not just dashes and dots of Morse code. Listeners were astonished to hear Oh Holy Night, played by violin and a human voice singing the final verse of the song. That was an amazing achievement, and it was the first radio broadcast ever recorded. There are two remarkable things about this broadcast. The first was the choice of material. Oh, holy night, especially the emphasis on the last verse. Did you know that this beautiful hymn was once quite controversial? In fact, it was banned by the church because they said it's lack of musical taste and total absence of the spirit of religion. Oh my goodness, it's a beautiful hymn. The song was written in France in 1847 as Cantique de Noël, but was soon forbidden to be performed in a church. But when the song was discovered by American John Sullivan Dwight and the lyrics translated to English in 1855, the song became an instant classic, especially among American abolitionists. The key is the last verse, and here it is. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chain shall he break, for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. This Christmas hymn established that slavery was wrong and in the name of Christ, it must be abolished. That was a controversial message at the time, but in America, it was certainly powerful, just a decade before the Civil War. It was also powerful coming from a Canadian scientist in 1906 named Reginald Fessenden, the inventor of radio telephony. At one time, he'd worked with Thomas Edison. And that leads us to another point. True Christianity stood against slavery in the 19th century, and Oh Holy Night proves the point. And I get chills whenever I hear the last verse. But the second point, by 1906, just four decades after the Civil War had ended, the same Christian spirit of individual liberty was instrumental in the spark of innovation that was rapidly transforming the world. In a span of a few decades, the electric light, automobiles, the radio, and even airplanes were either invented in or commercialized in America. Sometimes these great inventions were the brainchildren of people from other countries, but they found root and success in America like nowhere else. Join me in the Economic War Room where we will study the spirit of individual liberty and explain why it's under serious attack around the world, but also why it's absolutely essential for our future. What makes America exceptional? Is it the people? No, it can't be that. We are everybody else from everywhere else. Is it our geography, education, the weather, our religion? Some of those may play a role, but the real notion of American exceptionalism is based on individual liberty as enshrined in the Constitution. Bureaucracies and groupthink, they don't invent, they don't create, they don't improve. Business meetings are a great example. They're mind-numbing, inefficient, time wasters, soul killers, and yet, there's a massive push to eliminate individual creativity and replace it with bureaucracy. Who likes to go to meetings? Do you trust those people? Yet that's who we have running our lives as politicians. Would you rather go to Chick-fil-A or the DMV? It's the difference between being treated as an individual or being treated as a number. Have you ever heard the phrase, designed by committee? You know that creates a hot mess. The key distinction is individual creativity versus government or even corporate bureaucracy. 
In the political realm, it's individual liberty versus socialism, collectivism, and big government. Most of the world is controlled by large government with a few elites at the top living the good life while the rest of us people plod along. That's true in dictatorships, socialist nations, and even democratic socialism. And America was the exception. But nearly everywhere else has been top-down control. It's red states versus blue states. I know, it's actually more complex than that. It's really inner cities versus rural, as shown in election maps like this one I found on Wikipedia by Ali Ziffen. You can see the red parts, that's all rural America. And the blue parts, those are the big cities. And it's a fact that even in the red states like Texas, the big cities, Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, Austin, and El Paso, they're solidly Democrat. Why? Well, when you move to a city, you become interdependent and you turn to government for a few more services. When you work at big corporations, you depend on the human resources and all the different things. You don't know your neighbors. You don't know the person working next to you. But farmers, they're self-reliant. They depend on neighbors as individuals, but they don't demand that their neighbors subsidize them. It's really a stark difference in our culture. One is more collectivist and the other is more individualist. Now, there's a war on farms going on right now. Farms, guns, food production, anything from rural America. The green movement is opposed to cattle, fertilizer, and a lot of things that farmers depend on. At the same time, there's a big push to get everyone off the land and into big cities. Why? Control. It started in China, but it's spread around the world. You know, in the year 2000, only one-third of China lived in cities, but two-thirds live there today. That's unprecedented urbanization pushed on you by the Chinese Communist Party because Big Brother works best in cities. There you have smart meters, zoning rules, lockdowns, restrictions, neighbors spying on you, cameras everywhere. People in cities tend to be collectivists and they want bigger government benefits. People in rural areas, they're individualists. They want less government intrusion. The big cities become corrupt. We've all seen it, Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia. Collectivism concentrates power. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Collectivism, it saps the strength and the creativity of the individual. It's sort of like the Borg on Star Trek. Now I'm a Trekkie, so I know what the Borg is, but for the rest of you who aren't sci-fi nerds, let me explain. The Borg is one of the worst enemies ever faced by Star Trek. It's a collective that assimilates everyone and everything it encounters. It's transhumanist, kills individualism, and moves like locusts across the galaxy. The mantra of the Borg is, resistance is futile. Uh, here's how it was described in Wikipedia. An alien group appearing as recurring antagonists linked in a hive mind called the collective. The Borg co-op technology and knowledge of other species to the collective through assimilation. They forcibly transform individuals into drones. The goal is to achieve perfection. Whenever I hear the World Economic Forum or Marxists or Socialists, they look and sound like Borg to me. Give up your liberty, come join the collective. Yet the dirty secret of the Borg is that there's a queen in charge who does as she pleases. Sort of like elites who want the rest of us to live like drones while they're in charge of everything. Unfortunately, this is all very dangerous and a threat to our future. Collectivism is a threat to the American way of life and in some ways, the future of humanity. All right, we need to take a break. When we come back, we'll dive deeper into the power of the individual. My friend, former Congressman Bob McEwen has a wonderful speech about the uniqueness of America. Let me quote him in an excerpt. 
Only 4% of the population of the world are able to call themselves Americans. And yet every year, that little 4% writes more books, more plays, more symphonies, more copyrights, more inventions than the other 96% combined. And so I want to keep asking why. For thousands of years, people hoped to someday fly, as did some good Ohio boys. By the way, they were from uh, McEwen's congressional district. The Wright brothers invented the airplane. And McEwen's great uncle, he was their bookkeeper. And Orville just died in 1947. That's right, Americans decided that there could be an airplane. They invented the light bulb and the telephone. When you see an airplane fly, it has tires on it. Why? Because an American named Charlie Goodyear invented the vulcanization process for rubber. And inside of the plane, it is air conditioned. Why? Because Willis Carrier, an American, invented the air conditioner. And airplanes have lights flashing. Why? Because Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. The list goes on and on. But why this place and not the rest of the world? There are skyscrapers all over the planet. Why? Because an American named Elisha Otis in Vermont invented the safety elevator. And skyscrapers are in places where it's 100 degrees because air conditioning made it possible because of Americans. You know, Bob McEwen, he's right. In our recent episode, number 219, about Fast Daddy Rickenbacker, we shared that the great science societies and experts all said it would take 10 million years before man could achieve flight. Two months later, two individuals named Orville and Wilbur proved them wrong. And just like Bob, I could go on and on about the creativity of individuals. We all know about the revolution of the iPhone. It was made possible in part by my good friend, Gil Emilio, who invented the optical sensor that makes the camera work. Gil went on to be CEO and chairman of Apple. What sets America apart is individual liberty, the breeding ground for innovation and creativity. Collectivism can't compete. Our founders knew this. They created a provision in the Constitution so Congress could create patent rights found in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8, regarding intellectual property. In it, Congress was granted authority to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited time to authors and inventors, individuals, the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. President George Washington signed the first patent law in 1790, and it said he, she, or they could be protected. That's about individuals. It's a powerful acknowledgement, no matter the race or gender. Women inventors could own patents in America even before they could vote. Skin color wasn't a barrier either. There's a long history of black American inventors making the world a better place. Our friend Dr. Ben Carson makes the point powerfully. Let's watch a clip from an earlier episode. I don't care what your race is. You could walk down the streets of Dallas, Texas, and you could give them a black history lesson they'd never forget. You could start out by pointing to his shoes and say it was John Black. Motzleger, a black man who invented the automatic shoe lasting machine, which revolutionized the shoe industry throughout the world. And he steps on that clean street, and you tell him, what did Charles you say? Brooks. Charles Brooks. Oh. <laughs> 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 she said, and you say it was Charles Brooks, a black man who invented the refrigeration system for trucks, later adopted for airplanes and trains. And then it comes to a stop at the red light, and you tell them it was Garrett Morgan, a black man, who invented the traffic light. And you can tell how he also invented the gas mask, saved lots of lives during the war. You talk about the war, you talk about Henrietta Bradbury, a black woman, who invented the underwater cannon, made it possible to launch torpedoes from submarines. And then you see a beautiful black woman walking down the street. A black man did not invent her, but... 
<laughs> but you can take that opportunity to talk about Madam C.J. Walker, a black woman who invented cosmetic products for women of dark complexion, was the first woman of any nationality in this country to become a millionaires on her own efforts. And then you'll walk past the hospital, Charles Drew and the contributions to blood banking, blood plasma understanding, and your operating room, Daniel Hale Williams, a black surgeon, the first open heart surgery successful in the world. And you look up at the surgical light, Thomas Edison. You didn't know he was black, did you? <laughs> Well, he wasn't, but, <laughs> but his right-hand man, Louis Latimer, was. And it was Louis Latimer who came up with the filament that made the light bulb work for more than two or three days, invented the electric lamp, incandescent lighting, diagrammed the telephone for Alexander Graham Bell, was a tremendous inventor in his own right. Most people have never even heard of him. He walked past the railroad tracks, Andrew Beard, the automatic railroad car coupler spurred on the Industrial Revolution. Elijah McCoy, the automatic locomotive lubricating system. In fact, Elijah McCoy had so many inventions, people would say, is that a McCoy? Is that the real McCoy? <laughs> you, got, you got people like David Duke talking about the real McCoy, don't even know who he's paying homage to. And, uh, but, you know, the fact of the matter is, those were tremendous contributions, and I'm just barely touching the surface. But here's the coolest part. I can take that same walk down the street for virtually any nationality in this country and point out tremendous contributions that were made. That's why we're called the United States of America, and we should not let anybody destroy that for us. That's a powerful acknowledgement of the individual. No matter the race or gender, women inventors also changed the world. With paper bags invented by Margaret Knight, the dishwasher by Josephine Cochran, the life raft by Maria Beasley, windshield wipers by Mary Anderson, and the first computer language, COBOL, invented by Admiral Grace Hopper. Actress Hedy Lamarr even invented frequency code hopping that enables modern Wi-Fi, GPS, Bluetooth. Stephanie Kolick invented Kevlar. Patricia Bath invented a laser that dissolves cataracts. The list goes on and on for women and for minorities of all types. Why? Because invention is by individuals, not races or genders. When people see themselves as clogs in the collective, they don't have the spark of creativity and invention. Remember the Borg? They don't invent technology, they pretty much steal it and incorporate it. And that's what communism does. That's what the Chinese Communist Party has done for the past two decades. We call it unrestricted warfare. The Borg can't advance unless they're leeching off other civilizations, and humanity does not advance without individual liberty. This has been proven time and time again throughout history. I'm not exaggerating that point. And we need to take another break. When we come back, we're gonna talk about how this collectivist tendency is trying to destroy capitalism and innovation. But here's the good news. We have a plan to rebirth it. Join me after the break. America's under threat. At least the America we've known over the past two centuries the America of innovation and entrepreneurship and individual liberty. 
Sure, we, we can get new iPhones every year and the camera gets better. You know, sometime they're gonna have eight cameras on here. Uh, and the new models, they're more fun in some ways, but is that enough? Does that satisfy your desire for liberty? We're seeing individual liberty redefined as the ability to cross-dress and read stories to kids at libraries. But if you want to start a business or raise your kids by your own values or make personal medical choices other than for gender-bending surgery, you're seeing your liberties diminish. That's not just bad for you, it's bad for society and could be the end of America and terrible for the world. Did you know that as late as 1820, the world's per capita GDP was roughly the same as it had been a thousand years before? The average annual economic growth rate prior to 1820 was about 1 20th of 1% for a thousand years. But something happened amazingly in the world around 1820, and you guessed it, America became a hub of growth based on the notion of individual liberty. There's a paper that's published by NSEED University that explains how global prosperity emerged as the convergence of four factors. One, the greater transfer of knowledge. They call it the encyclopedists, which is also the weakening of overprotective guilds. Uh, prior to 1820, the labor unions or the guilds, they would hold on to their knowledge and not share it so that they could protect their economic position. Two, the effective protection of property rights just like we talked about in patents. Three, healthy competition between nations. So then inventors not welcome in one country could take their brilliance elsewhere, and a lot of them came to America. And four, the development of financial instruments that dynamized innovation and risk-taking. That's investing. All four of those factors are based in individual liberty, and they were all adopted in America. And the world was blessed as a result. All four right now are under threat by collectivists who want to strengthen unions, deny private property, eliminate competition, and limit risk-taking. Doing this would take us back to medieval times, literally. Even Bono, the activist, lead singer from U2, you know Bono, he understands this. Here's a quote from a recent interview he did with the New York Times. He said, I ended up as an activist in a very different place from where I started. I thought that if we just redistributed resources, then we could solve every problem. I now know that's not true. There's a funny moment when you realize that as an activist. The off-ramp out of extreme poverty is uh, commerce. It's entrepreneurial capitalism. Here's what the National Review said about Bono's New York Times interview. They said, Bono is unquestionably correct. In 1990, about 38% of the world's population lived on less than $2.15 per day, the international definition for extreme poverty. In 2019, only about 8% lived below that line. And yes, that's adjusted for inflation and the cost of living. What used to be a problem for over a third of the world's people is now a problem for less than a tenth of them. So what changed in 1990? That's just after the Berlin Wall fell when individual liberty began its global ascent. We exported Americanism. Now, however, politicians, socialist governments, and the World Economic Forum have conspired to remove Americanism, to replace individual liberty and entrepreneurial capitalism with their own brand of collectivism. That's inherent in the Green New Deal. It's the basis for the Great Reset, and this was predicted by a Russian economist named Joseph Schumpeter nearly a century ago. Again, I'm gonna quote from Inseed. 
Joseph Schumpeter, 1883 to 1950, was pessimistic about the future of capitalism. He believed that powerful incumbents, think conglomerates, would eventually dominate every sector. By stifling competition, they would kill innovation and growth softly. That's precisely what we see from democratic socialism. That's what we see from the World Economic Forum. They're attempting to replace individual liberty with state-endorsed, corporate-driven, globalist collectivism. Again, think the Borg from Star Trek. Schumpeter's fear has come to pass. The great innovators have become rich and powerful, and they use that power to stifle competition. You know, Google started with the motto, don't be evil. Well, too late, Google, as we shared in episode 214 with Dr. Robert Epstein. Big companies don't want innovation that threatens their power. They want people as employees, not entrepreneurial threats. We've seen how big tech like Google and Twitter have worked to control us all, how we think, and they've tried to influence our elections. We've seen how Microsoft founder Bill Gates wants to control your health policy and really limit world population. We've seen big corporations working with socialists to control that population. Have you noticed the recent push to make people employees? Presumably so they get corporate benefits. As just one example, independent Uber and truck drivers in California now have to be classified as employees rather than independent entrepreneurs. Of course, there are advantages to being an employee, but it also interferes with individual liberty. Some people drive Uber or Lyft or do other gig jobs just to make money on the side to start their own business or invent things. But the government makes it exceedingly difficult to start a new business and it's getting harder every day. They want all but the elite to work in their collective. They even have school to work programs to get everyone as cogs in the machine. It all sounds noble, but it stifles individual liberty and creativity. Even our patent system has switched from favoring the inventor to favoring big corporations, as we explained in episodes 208 and 217. We don't like to bring you problems, though, without solutions, and we have a good one. Here's our good answer to the problem of the destruction of the individual. It's you, the little ships. You should weaponize your money to support liberty, security, and values. We need to work to democratize investing and give you the opportunity to invest in good new entrepreneurial inventions. For too long, we've been told just invest in the stock market through an index fund and let it ride. But then you learn that ESG movement has hijacked corporate boardrooms to force their policies on you. But you're the owners, not the slaves of your investment portfolio. It's time to stand up for liberty, security, and values. But don't try this alone. Don't try this at home without a financial advisor. Do you have one? If you do, don't you want them sharing your values and investing to protect your values? That's why we started the NSIC Institute. We want to bring back individual liberty, both for investors and inventors. Now, to compete with the big players, we need to train 10,000 financial advisors. That would be a trillion dollars of capital. And we started an online course at Liberty University. It's an eight-week course. We have another one that will launch very soon. So if you know a financial planner, a stockbroker, an insurance agent, a CPA, send them to us. And they can learn more looking at NSIC.org. In this course, they're gonna learn about how the collectivist threat coming from the Chinese communists, globalists, and domestic Marxists threatens you. They'll do a deep dive into the threat of ESG. And this is really just a progressive agenda, control energy and food and population, and to 
cause social justice, a buzzword for equity. Really, it's just socialism and racial tensions. And the G is governance. It's, it's a means of progressives to take over cor corporate boardrooms the way Mussolini's fascists took over Italian companies. Instead of ESG, we train investors in LSV. So learn more in the free economic battle plan for this episode. You can get it at economicwarroom.com. Remember what we see as a marketplace, our enemies view as a battle space. This is Kevin Freeman from the Economic War Room.